Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to watching reruns of Punked. Thank you. It's a generational joke. I am uh, Eric Metaxas, ostensibly your host for the evening. Tonight marks the first Socrates in the City event of 2004, and it also, amazingly to me, marks the fifth calendar year in which we've been doing these events. Uh, I just find that stunning. Uh, as I look at where we are today, I'm happy to report that the state of Socrates in the city is strong and confident. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad somebody watched that speech last night. Um, this is a rather extraordinary crowd. I'm somewhat stunned... Uh, at the size of it, especially given the fact that it's very cold outside. Uh, I want to welcome those of you who are here with us for the first time. I'm actually curious, who's never been to one of these before? Would you raise your hands? Wow. And I'm just curious, how many people are here for the last time? Would you... <laughs> if you raise your hand, I'm sorry in advance. We'll try to do better. Um, anyway, for those of you who are new to these events, and that's a fair number of you, um, perhaps a word of explanation is in order. As you may already know, Socrates in the city takes its name from Socrates. Uh, at least that's what I'm told. Um, Socrates, of course, lived in ancient Greece, although he wasn't aware of it at the time. Uh, history... What is my round over? That's the clock. They, they never have events here, so they didn't realize that they had to take care of that. Um, history tells us that uh, hardly anyone who lived in ancient Greece knew that it was actually called ancient Greece. And as a, as a Greek, I want to say that I'm deeply embarrassed by that fact, but it's just something I live with, as do all Greeks. Uh, but the point of using Socrates' name is, in fact, that he once famously said that the unexamined life is not worth a hill of beans in this crazy world. No, actually, that's the wrong quote. I'm sorry. Hang on. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, I think Socrates was on to something. It's all too easy for us human beings to lead unexamined lives, especially in modern-day New York, because we're all so busy with our careers and the other things that pull us away from what is central and vital. But thinking about who we are and asking the big questions is far too important to ignore. So a group of us thought it might be a good idea to have events like these, where we invited top drawer speakers to speak for a fraction of their usual fees. <laughs> Frederica, they think I'm joking. Of course, uh, it is true that, we, that it's easy for us to, uh, to lose our focus on what's important. Um, that was our idea. Out of it, Socrates in the City was born. Uh, we've been doing these events since the fall of 2000, as I say, and I hope we'll continue to do them for a long time coming. Which brings me to the issue of funding. I'll be very brief. I want to be very clear that we've never accepted a dime from George Soros, and we've never accepted a dime from Halliburton, although I admit that Dick Cheney did do some work on my summer bungalow. just want to say that up front. Um, Uh, but seriously, I did want to explain that the, the actual cost of these events, most people don't know this, is about $55 per person. 
Uh, this is, after all, Manhattan, and the room is none too shabby. We just had this paneling put in this past week. Um, so for the new year, we decided to raise our price to $30. It had been 20 but I want everyone to be clear that this is still a serious discount from the actual price, and I want everyone to know that the difference is subsidized by folks like you uh, and mostly by my very dear friends at the Emanuel Foundation who believe in what we're doing here, and God bless them for it. So, feel free. So I say this only because I've, I've never said this before, but if anybody wants to write a check for larger than $30, $55 would cover you, and anything above that would cover the other people who are paying 30 So um, uh, no pressure. We want everyone to be here. But in case anyone feels so moved, we'd be deeply appreciative. Um, so thank you. I also want to thank our pianist, Sue Song, who out of the goodness of her heart has been playing at these events over the last year. Is Sue here? Can we applaud for Sue? There she is. As, uh, as a way of sort of paying uh, Sue back, I begged her to bring some of her CDs so we could have a chance to purchase them. Purchase them. They're out at our book table. I've got one at home. The music is absolutely glorious. No other word will suffice. Um, please, if you feel so inclined, thank Sue for doing this by buying one of her CDs. I don't think you'll regret it. Um, I also don't normally do this at Socrates in the City, but we have an honored guest with us tonight. I feel obliged to, uh, to mention that. And of course, the honored guest is my dad, Mr. Nick Metaxas, right over here. You, you wanna... I got him to come here by saying that it just looked bad that neither you nor mom ever come to these things, and it would really be, uh, help me out here, I'm your son. Um, no, I'm uh, beyond delighted that he's graced us with his presence. Um, a word about the index cards on your seats. Uh, if you have not been getting our email invitations and we've had very strange problems with our listserv, please put your email address on the card and drop it off at the sign-in table on the way out. Also, if you feel inclined to put your, uh, your mailing address, your snail mail address, we'd appreciate that. But mostly email addresses. Please don't uh, forget to do that. We really want to stay in touch with you and sort of hope you want to stay in touch with us. Um, thank you. A word on our format, very simple. Eventually, I stop talking, eventually. Then our speaker, thank you, thank you, friends. Um, then our speaker, in this case, Frederica Matthews Green, starts talking and continues for about 40 minutes. After that, we have a question and answer period, and we will be done, I promise, at about five minutes to nine, which in this time zone is 8.55. Um, after that, we'll have more food, wine, and conversation. The reception at the back end is actually longer than the reception at the front end, so stick around. Um, now, finally, a few words about our speaker, the amazing Frederica Matthews Green. First of all, Frederica Matthews Green is a dear friend, a very dear friend. Um, and, of course, she'd have to be, as I said. Um, but before she was a friend, she was someone I knew through her writing, not only is Frederica a brilliant thinker, as all of our speakers are, or at least aim to be, but she's also a brilliant writer, and I feel qualified to say that because I'm a writer, and Frederica is one of those writers whom I would call a writer's writer. 
She expresses herself particularly well. I never cease to be impressed uh, either by the wide range and extraordinary depth of her mind on any number of subjects. Uh, Any one of her books will tell you this, but she's also written hundreds of articles, essays, and book reviews for every publication you can imagine. And she's done many radio and TV commentaries, most notably for National Public Radio. You're not one of those click-and-clack guys, are you? Because I don't know what they look like, and I always wonder. Um, You can find most of Frederica's writings, her essays, uh, at frederica.com. I heartily recommend a visit to that website. I'm not a web guy, but uh, that is a website which would be well worth um, checking out. Um, Well, beyond these accomplishments, Frederica, and I'll really embarrass her now, is without a doubt one of the most spiritually mature people I have ever met. That's not something that is easily calculated, but one knows it when one encounters it, and in Frederica, one encounters it in spades. But she also combines that with a brilliant sense of humor. If you go to frederica.com, you'll find essays with titles like Gagging on Shiny Happy People. Let me say that again. Gagging on Shiny Happy People. Uh, There's one called Let's Have More Teen Pregnancy. Not what it seems. And finally, To Hell on a Cream Puff. I think you get the idea. So, as you see, I'm very privileged in being able to count her as a dear friend. Her books on spirituality, most often of the Eastern Orthodox variety, are powerfully instructive to anyone at all who's interested in thinking a bit deeper about what life is all about and about what's important. So I'm thrilled to have lured her here tonight. And without further ado, my dear friend, Frederica Matthews Green. Hello. It's wonderful to see such a big crowd. This is a lot more people than I expected, so this is wonderful. And I know you're friendly because New York is a very friendly place. And this is how I know New York is friendly. About 15 years ago, my husband and I came up to visit our friend Anne, who lived in Manhattan, and she said, I'll be out when you get there, but just tell the doorman, and he'll let you into my apartment. So we came in the door of the building, and as we walked in, the doorman said, Matthews? And we said, yes. And he said, yeah, 4B, just go on up. So we went up to 4B, and it was a party. You know, we could hear that we opened the door, it's, it's full of people. They're partying. They, we each got a glass of white wine. We thought, this is odd. I don't see Anne. <laughs> you know, where is it? Why would they be having a party in Anne's apartment when she's out? Maybe it's her roommate's party. So we're chatting. You know, my husband's in the dining room, and I'm off over by the window, and we're talking, and people keep coming up and making conversation. And, oh, like a half an hour later, um, a couple come up, husband and wife, and they stand in front of us, and they say, who are you? <laughs> and it, it turned out, actually, what the doorman had said was, good hues? And we'd been in the good hues apartment drinking, <laughs> drinking their wine um, and not realizing. And, you know, the husband and wife are in the kitchen saying, I don't know them. Do you know them? Who do you? Maybe they're friends of so-and-so. Maybe so-and-so bought them. So we know that New York's a very friendly place. Just uh, say good hues and you're welcome anywhere in the city. My title tonight, even though I came up with this title, I'm not entirely satisfied with it. Uh, The title that uh, Eric and I back and forth on the email was, Can We Access God Directly? 
a view from Eastern Christian spirituality. Can we access God directly? It sounds sort of like you're trying to fish something out that fell behind the refrigerator. So um, it's, it's not a very elegant uh, way of phrasing it. It's awkward, but it is an awkward question, I think, for mainstream Christianity, or has become one. In uh, recent months, last few years, as books, magazines, TV shows have explored the spirituality of the early Christians. Uh, You've run across some of this, I'm sure, articles about ancient documents like the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the novel, The Da Vinci Code, discussions about the role of Mary Magdalene and whether Jesus was married to her. Those are probably the liveliest questions, the ones that have to do with Mary Magdalene. That's not where I plan to focus tonight. But I do want to mention, I think it's significant, that biblical scholars across the spectrum are agreed on the answer to the question of whether Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. There isn't much else that this crowd agrees on. Lift the hat on a card-carrying theologian, and you're likely to find anything from a conviction that God created a special fish just to swallow Jonah to the notion that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Instead, his disciples were able to build a faith that spread throughout the world and lasted 2,000 years on fond memories of a really great dead guy. You know, people, people are fond of Ronald Reagan, but do you think 2,000 years from now there are going to be Reagan churches everywhere? <laughs> there is one thing, though, when it comes to this topic, there's one thing all these biblical scholars across the spectrum agree on. Jesus was not married. There's lots of evidence that he was not married. There is zero evidence that he was married. And, of course, to some people, this can mean only one thing, a cover-up. The inescapable conclusion. Uh, C.S. Lewis said of this kind of uh, analysis, the absence of smoke proves that the fire has been very carefully hidden. (laughs) The biblical scholar John Dominic Crossan, who's quite liberal, you know, Jesus Seminary, um, says the evidence that Jesus was not married is so irrefutable that the contrary theory goes like this. If it walks like a duck, looks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's got to be a camel dressed up like a duck. <laughs> so I don't, I don't plan to go in any depth into the Mary Magdalene controversy tonight, although I know you've been hearing a lot about it lately, except to note that it's an example of current interest in early Christianity. There's a lot of this going on lately. And I want to mention that in my church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Mary Magdalene has always been called a great saint. In fact, she's been called equal to the apostles, but she's never been called a prostitute. That's a different woman in the gospel story. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Many beloved saints were prostitutes. There is no life story, there is no past history that can stand as a barrier when a person decides to come home to God. No matter what a man or a woman has done, they will always find the Father waiting with open arms, as Jesus shows us in the story of the prodigal son. Let's go off from there. Think about how do you come home to God? How do you make contact with God? Can you have direct access to God? Or do you have to go through an intermediary? Maybe you can't really know God personally. You can only know facts about him and recite these facts on demand. It's uh, how some people think of the creeds. 
Maybe any interaction between you and God has to be filtered through a qualified clergyman, like an overseas phone call a generation ago. Does mainstream Christianity forbid direct access to God? Now, that's the impression you would get from Elaine Pagel's intriguing book titled Beyond Belief. It was a bestseller last summer. Um, I've, I've read Beyond Belief. I've not read The Da Vinci Code, but I have a strategy. This is what I'm doing about The Da Vinci Code. La, 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 la. <laughs> it's going to go away, you know, if I wait long enough. So, so far, people ask me questions about The Da Vinci Code. I can say, I haven't read it, and I'm going to stick to that as long as I can. But Beyond Belief was a fascinating book. Um, in it, Elaine Pagels is making the case for a diversity of views within early Christianity. Ah, oh, round three. <laughs> is making a case for a diversity of views within early Christianity, and especially promoting, it just goes on, especially promoting the, um, the views of, that were found in the Nag Hammadi texts you already know some of this because it's been in the news so much. A trove of ancient documents discovered in Egypt in 1945. Some of them are Gnostic, some are not, but that tends to be the umbrella term, Gnostic Gospels. She cites a passage from one of those texts titled The Secret Book of John. And then after this passage, she says, this shows us, here's a quote, that we have a latent capacity within our hearts and minds that links us with the divine. I noticed that quote coming out in reviews. This was a, such a beautiful, a thrilling new idea to many reviewers. Uh, the idea that we could have direct contact, that there is a latent capacity in our hearts and minds that links us with the divine. You could actually have direct access to God. And Pagels believes and writes that mainstream Christianity forbids this. She quotes a Benedictine monk who protested to her, but there's nothing in those Gnostic texts that you can't find in the writings of the great mystics of the church, like St. Teresa of Avila or St. John of the Cross. Elaine Pagels dismisses that suggestion, though. She believes those mystics felt restricted to report only the revelations that would pass muster with the church, that would fit the rules that the church imposed. And one of the church's rules is that people can talk about having a relationship with God, but they can never speak of an emerging identity, identification with God that wells up from within um, what we would say St. Paul calls life in Christ, where there's almost a merging going on, a union. And Elaine Pagel said that would be thought heretical, not only in a Christian context, but in a Jewish or Muslim context as well. She quotes a Jewish scholar to the effect that while a Jewish mystic could speak of his relationship to God in terms of I and thou, he could not say, I am thou, an infused or merged identity in which the presence of God fills a person would be thought heretical. I'd like to read a section of a prayer by an Eastern Orthodox monk, St. Nikolai Velimirovic. You have clothed yourself with seven heavens. You have hidden yourself too deep for any eyes. If all the suns were to merge into a single eye, they would be unable to burn through your veils. You have not concealed yourself intentionally, O great Lord, but because of our imperfection, a divided and dissected creature does not see you. You are unhidden only to the one who has become one with you. 
you are unhidden only to the one for whom the wall between I and thou has been destroyed. You are unhidden only to the one for whom the wall between I and thou has been destroyed. This doesn't sound like what you expect to hear in Christian spirituality. In fact, Pagels has just said that such a view would be shockingly heretical, stamped out, suppressed, and yet this is a saint in the Orthodox Church. Apparently, there are some sides to Christianity that most people don't know about. Tonight, I'll be acquainting you with some of these unfamiliar aspects of early and eastern Christian spirituality from my perspective as a member, wife of a priest in the Orthodox Church. Um, you may not have a clear idea of what that is. I've had people say to me, isn't that some kind of Protestant church or isn't that some kind of Catholic church? It's neither one. It's an entirely separate and distinct Christian spiritual tradition. If you, um, just a little miniature uh, history lesson, go back to the beginning. Christian faith began with an event, with an explosive event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The news of this burst out of Jerusalem and spread in all directions at once, uh, reaching west into Europe as far as the British Isles, and you've heard of the Celtic Christians, south into Africa, you've heard of the Desert Fathers, Desert Mothers, the ancient Ethiopian and Coptic churches. It spread into India to a faith community that claims the Apostle Thomas as their founder, and continued east along the Silk Road all the way to China, where the pagoda of an 8th century Christian monastery still stands. So Christianity is not a Western religion. It just seems that way to us who live in the West because we know our own history the best. The church in Western Europe has been mostly separated from these Christians elsewhere since the year 1054, what's called the Great Schism. And from that point, the European church, based in Rome, continued to develop and follow its own historical path 500 years after the split, the Protestant Reformation began separating from the Roman Catholic Church. But in the rest of the world, Christian faith continued to thrive. In parts of the world, mostly not as well known to us, Eastern Europe, Africa, Asia, among believers who were neither Roman Catholic nor Protestant. This is what I mean by the Orthodox Church. Sometimes it's called Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. You saw my big fat Greek wedding. You saw a beautiful Orthodox wedding there. Um, it's all the same thing. Russian, Greek, Romanian, doesn't matter. It's the same. It's one worldwide church. In America, we should have an indigenous American Orthodox church. Every nation should have their own church, and that's a goal that we're working toward. The situation was complicated here because of the diversity of immigrants from so many different Orthodox nations. I am not Greek, I'm not Russian, I'm not even Eastern. I'm, uh, I guess I should be called Southern Orthodox, South Carolina, Charlestonian Orthodox. I'm a convert to myself. Um, my husband and I were chrismated into the Orthodox Church. It'll be 11 years ago this month, and we started, founded a little parish near BWI Airport, if you're ever down that way, just south of Baltimore. Now, my Roman Catholic friends tell the story differently. But from the Orthodox point of view, the reason for that split in 1054 was we don't believe you should change things. We believe that the earliest consensus of the church is all we need. That is, the faith that was held in common throughout the world going back to the earliest times. It's not centered in a visible earthly leader or in a bureaucracy. It's in the faith itself. 
that which was diffused around the world and tested in so many different cultures and times. That's what guides us. Rome, on the other hand, believed that an earthly leader was necessary to define and defend the faith and develop doctrine. And indeed, the chaos of Europe after the fall of Rome, that makes sense. Political leadership was indispensable. Protestant Reformation grew out of Rome, and though it rebelled at points, it shared many unexamined premises. Orthodox continue to stick doggedly to the earliest liturgies and practices, our Sunday morning worship services, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, who died in the year 405, and includes a lot of material even earlier than him, though. Protestants and Catholics usually agree that Orthodox have maintained an earlier form of Christianity than the churches based in Europe did. So as I acquaint you tonight with these elements of Eastern, of Orthodox spirituality, it does feel a little Eastern in comparison with Western Christianity. To some extent, I sympathize with Elaine Pagels and the other critics when they say that the Christianity they're familiar with can lack a sense of immediate, direct contact with God. It can say, I and thou, with great tenderness, but it doesn't go further. Classic Western devotional works bear titles like The Imitation of Christ, The Practice of the Presence of God. A modern-day popular expression of this piety is the What Would Jesus Do bracelets. God is very near us, but he's always outside. In Orthodox Christianity, on the other hand, we hark to an earlier tradition that fully expects union with God, a union that is not reserved for professional high-wire mystics, but is God's intention for every human being. The Greek term is theosis, and it's hard to translate without alarming people. Uh, The classic statement is from Athanasius, the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Theosis means becoming God, literally. Now, becoming God doesn't mean we're going to get superpowers and have our own little private starter set universe that we can populate. It means that the presence of God is inherent within us because of creation, and it can be awakened, or rather, we can be awakened, and this presence can begin to spread and penetrate us completely. It's like placing a piece of iron in a furnace. This is one of the ancient analogies. Put a piece of iron in a furnace, and gradually, the presence of fire spreads all through the iron until it glows. It has taken on the properties of fire. And yet, it remains a piece of iron, intact and uncompromised. It can bear fire while remaining itself. Likewise, our immersion in the presence of God will not annihilate us. We will remain as exquisitely unique as God designed us to be because he loves and delights in his creation. When fully aflame with the Holy Spirit, we'll be more inevitably ourselves than we were ever capable of being before because the flame of God's perfect love casts out fear. Now, when I talk about theosis, you may ask, where's that in the Bible? Uh, The truth is that when Paul talks about life in Christ, Christ in me and I in him, this is what he's talking about. But the answer really is it's everywhere. It's just that it's such an underlying premise we don't recognize it because we Westerners have substituted a different premise. We've overlaid a different understanding of God and how he relates to creation. If we don't think about it very much, we picture God residing somewhere out there, maybe sitting on a cloud, looking down at the earth. Occasionally, he reaches in and does a little bit of rearranging. Mostly, he lets things take their course. 
We expect that God notices really big things that happen, like the bombing of the Twin Towers. We're relatively sure God noticed that. We think he knows some of the smaller things, um, especially the stuff you feel guilty about. You partly feel guilty because you think God saw it, like uh, yelling at your kids this morning. But we presume God doesn't know the really small stuff, like you're worrying about those pounds you put on over the holidays, or that you spent some minutes this morning fantasizing about somebody you're not married to. We figure God's got a big job, and he's got a major in the majors. This view of God comes from a philosophy known as Neoplatonism, which affected some early Christian writers, particularly Augustine. In Neoplatonism, the highest level of being is the One, with a capital O. If you're a fan of the Matrix, it's Neo, you know, the One, which is pure and changeless. And the One flows, that's overflowing constantly, almost uh, emanating in concentric rings. So the one is always overflowing. All of the lower circles are drawn back irresistibly toward the center, except the outermost one. And wouldn't you know it, that's this material world. Instead of changeless perfection, in this material world we see tumult and decay. The material world looks like it's a trap designed just to lure us away from God, away from the changeless, pure core. There is a spark of hope, and that is our minds. Pure thought, uncontaminated by materiality, can enable us to transcend bodily things and return, get back up to the changeless core. So, you see, intellect is much more important in this scheme than emotion, and certainly much more important than the body. The body is very suspect. This is very much the core of the Gnostic Gospels and Gnostic doctrine which, after all, is concerned with gnosis, you know, that means knowledge, mental insight, and how to escape the trap of the body with its beguiling, deadly material world. Similar thoughts appear in St. Augustine and became entrenched in Western Christianity. But this idea is not in the Bible. It is utterly alien to Jewish theology, as well as to the Christians who came after them. They believed that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the original view, all the earth is the Lord's, and he fills it, and he dwells in it. He's not captured by it, of course. There is more to God than creation reveals. There is an inner reality to God that will always be beyond our grasp. But yet he permeates this very good world, flowing his life into it, and has made it beautiful and pleasurable, and has made our good bodies participant in it, so that they continually feed from the earth and return to it. We are participants in God as well, partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter says. We are made in the image and likeness of God and called to continually bring ourselves more fully into that reality and assimilate it more completely. So rather than the stillness, the changelessness imagined by Neoplatonism, there's a lot of energy in this process. Our translations of the Bible into English don't convey this, um, but they're the prevalence of, of varieties of the word energon, energon. Here, Philippians 2, for it is God who is energizing in you, energon, both to will and to energize, energain, for the sake of his good pleasure. Ephesians 1, the exceeding greatness of his power in us who believe through the energizing energeon of his mighty strength, energized energeson in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, God's word energizes in you who believe. 
Galatians 5, faith energizing through love. Eight of them now? <laughs> oh, it's so quiet. <laughs> think, think. <laughs> it's just distracting. Okay. Um, so life in Christ is not an emotionless, changeless static state of grace. I mean, even the term state of grace sounds so still. It is alive because God is life and love and light with all the accompanying associations of vigor and energy. You know, um, God is so often likened to light throughout the scriptures and throughout Christian devotion for 2,000 years. It only recently occurred to me that before 100 years ago, there was no light without flame, there is no light without an element of danger and, and almost intimidation. As you come closer to the light, you come closer to the heat as well. And uh, I think that uh, counts somewhat for the... It's a good analogy for God's righteousness because if there's any compromising to be done in an encounter with fire, you will be the one who changes. You're going to be the one who has to compromise. The fire is not going to change. I think this... Um, Sort of the alarming aspect of the light and the life of God is what C.S. Lewis was getting at when he said that Aslan the lion is not a tame lion. Um, He's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe, not controllable. So where does Jesus come into this story? We were created in the image and likeness of God, but we were not created perfect. God gave us room to grow. So their full assimilation with him would be voluntary, not coerced. But instead, we turned away from him, using our free will to break communion with the source of life. And this meant we began to die. Breaking communion with the source of life means death. It's like a diver cutting through his air hose. Death poisoned us and spread through all the human race, and we could not save ourselves. God came in Christ to rescue us. Uh, Second Corinthians, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The Son of God became man so that we might become God. Christ took on human form and came to earth because all creation is united in his presence and infused with his life. Christ went into the realm of death for us and destroyed it by his power. Now we are restored to our condition at the beginning, able to choose whether to walk in the light and cultivate the kingdom of God which is within you, or to turn toward fearful selfishness, a path that leads ultimately back to captivity by death and misery and darkness. So in conclusion, can we access God directly? Yes, God is already intimately present within us because he made us. He invites us to live into that presence and allow it to expand and fill us so that we will be like that iron in the furnace, glowing with his uncreated light. God became man so that we might become God. This is the starting point of Eastern Christian spirituality. And it's not something that we encounter very often in the West. I did a little Google. I just I typed in God became man to see what would come up. And one of the first things that came up was a Catholic catechism that said, God became man to help us know God better and to teach us more about God and ourselves. And that is more typical of what you hear. A few more links down. It was a, a sermon from a Protestant pastor's website. In becoming a man, Jesus became the perfect substitute sacrifice and died to pay the penalty for our sins. 
those are things you're used to hearing. But uh, what about this bald-faced statement, so that we may become God? Yet the early Christian expectation was that life in Christ would be transforming, not just of emotions or of behavior, but of a person's very being, their ontological reality. This, translation, this transformation by assimilation with the presence of God is intended by God to be the destiny of every human being. It is what we were made for. I'm getting close to the end now. Maybe I'll make it before that thing <laughs> takes off again. Um, but I want to address one more question. As I was writing this, it occurred to me that people might mean that question a different way when they say, can we have direct access to God? They might say, no, no, what I mean is, can I contact God directly all on my own without any other people involved? And I'd have to say, yes, yes, it's possible, but it's not a good idea. Here's why. God can contact you directly outside of a faith community. I know that because it happened to me. I... Um, I don't know if I should tell the whole story or not, um, but I was a, I was a <laughs> pretty committed agnostic, um, sort of flirting with a lot of different religions, kind of going through the food court of a little bit of you know transcendental meditation and a little bit of Hare Krishna, a little bit of this and that. But there was one religion I wanted no part of, and that was Christianity. I really had contempt for Christian faith. I was uh, very very committed feminist, um, just a, a lot, all the typical reasons. And um, I was, this was going to be 30 years ago, this June, 30 years ago on June 20th. I was hitchhiking around Europe, and, you know, you can't go to Europe without going into churches. You know, you've got to go in museums, you've got to go in churches. So I was, I walked in a church, and uh, as, I, as I went up, there was the big main altar, there was a little side altar, there was a statue of Jesus, and uh, in this statue, Jesus was gesturing toward his chest, and the sculptor had depicted Jesus' heart exposed on his chest. It had flames coming out of the top and the crown of thorns wrapped around the heart. And on the base of the statue, it said, Behold the heart that has so loved mankind. Well, this was a vision to a 17th century French or, or maybe Belgian nun. I was... I remember standing there and looking at this statue and criticizing it and thinking that the details on the hands and the feet weren't really as well done as they could be and that sort of thing. And then I kind of came to and I realized that I was on my knees and I could hear a voice inside speaking to me. It wasn't, I've never heard anything with my ears, but it was as if there was a radio in my chest, and it suddenly snapped on, and there was a voice. And the voice said, I am your life. I am your life. The words just rolled like waves of a sea. Um, he said, you've always thought that your life was your history, your personality, your name, the things you've done, but that is not your life. I am your life. And he said, and this was when I was uh, one of my pet religious theories was that the life force is God. He said, you think that your life is the fact that you're alive and that your heart beats and that your breath goes in and out. Even that is not your life. I am your life. I am the foundation of everything else in your life. 
Oh, well, I got up feeling pretty shaky. If you had stopped me on the way into the church and asked me, you know, what do you think of Jesus? I would have probably said, well, he's just a myth, you know, people make up to comfort themselves, you know, if they can't deal with real life. And I would have said some more dismissive things about the sexism and the uh, the tediousness and the general stupidity of Christianity. But here he was. Here he was, and he was real. He was realer than anything else I think I've ever encountered. Um, it's, it's hard to say. There is a way in which, uh, like, like a picture suddenly going negative, like everything reversed, and what seemed ordinary reality seemed insubstantial. It seemed like a mist compared to the power of that presence. And uh, by the grace of God, it has never left me, and I've never doubted it. I understand why people have doubts, but I can't doubt because this was like being hit on the head with a bowling ball. You know, this was one of those experiences you just can never doubt, that presence. When you start there, when you realize that Jesus is alive now, then you don't really have any doubts about whether he was resurrected then, because he's still alive. He's still around. And as I read through the writings of Christians over the last 2,000 years, this occurs over and over. People said, I met him. I felt his presence. I could hear his voice speaking to me. He just keeps showing up. He is life. He is alive. Anyway, I wasn't <clears throat> going to take all that time. but um, It was a confrontation with that presence that was so intense and so alive that it overwhelmed me and it left no doubt in my mind that he was alive, alive with an intensity that I didn't begin to match, and that he was the truth, a truth that I had not been seeking and that I was reluctant to know. If you consider yourself a sophisticated person, it's embarrassing to become a Christian. The Christians are the nerds, you know. I was, you know, dragging my heels down the hallway, but uh, that moment flattened me and left no room for doubt. So, can Can you have direct, independent access to God without any kind of Christian community around you? Oh, yeah. I know that can happen because it happened to me. Um, I think it's not a good idea to go kind of seeking it because you can invent it, because delusion is such a fearful possibility. Ask yourself, can you think of anybody anywhere in history that thought God was speaking to them and it was a terrible delusion? Um, and catastrophe ensued after that. Uh, it is possible that there are other forces out there, more things in heaven and earth than you've dreamt of, Horatio, and your philosophy, as Hamlet said. It's possible there are other things out there, other forces out there, not all of them benign, and they can do a good imitation of what sounds like a spiritual voice. Delusion is possible. Don't think that you're immune. Don't think you're so smart. Um, you may not be as smart as you think, You might have enemies who are smarter than you expect. There are more levels to spiritual reality than we Westerners expect. And especially after two centuries of Enlightenment thinking, we don't recognize the supernatural even when it walks up and conks us on the head. So I know the sophisticated response is to dismiss all these concerns, but I do advise you to keep an open mind. Don't go into these realms without a road map and some good friends by your side. And be humble. Be humble about what you don't know yet. Know what your limitations are. You're probably not as smart as you think. That's why a community is so valuable. 
is it possible to have contact with God without a community? Yeah, but why? You know, it's going to be a lot safer and a lot better if you've got other friends around you to help you. A community links people together like a rope links mountain climbers. Here you can check out with other people the things you're experiencing so you don't fall down that well of self-delusion. People who are farther along on the path can explain things that are puzzling to you and boost you over the rough spots. One of the things I like best about the Orthodox Church is we have such a lively sense of that everyone who has ever been in Christ is still alive, just not visible to us. That's why if you walk into an Orthodox church, you see icons all over the inside with figures from the Bible and from church history. On Sunday morning when we worship, we know they're there next to us. We just can't see them. So the the images, the paintings, sort of make visible that invisible reality. These brothers and sisters stand with us in worship. So this greatly expanded spiritual community, transcending time, means we have greatly expanded resources of friendship, wisdom, and intercession. Truly, I was surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Can we have direct access to God? God already has complete access to you. He knows the number of hairs on your heads. He made you. He knows you thoroughly inside and out. He knows things about you that you don't know about yourself. Uh, Jesus said, I have many more things to show you, but you cannot bear them now. The kindness of God as he reveals us to ourselves, step by step, as we can bear it. It is you who are being invited to live into this reality, this core, and begin to know him. It's, it sounds uh, <laughs> kind of woo-woo, you know, spiritual floaty, um, but it's very down-to-earth. So much of the spiritual life is just a matter of paying attention learning to focus, learning to live in creation, in the moment where God is radiantly present instead of dithering over the past or the future, pacing in our minds like a caged tiger. We're so easily distracted that forming the habit of attentive listening to God takes self-discipline. And the timeless community is blessedly full of good practical advice about how to do that, how to cultivate attention to that light that light and presence of God within. Um, A lot of it's just like breaking bad habits of distractibility and creating new habits of paying focused attention to that voice within. And um, it's it's just very down to earth. So you are invited to join that community, to become one more member of that great cloud of witnesses. I'll close with this one line from Scripture, an ancient hymn even uh, earlier than St. Paul himself. St. Paul quotes this hymn to the Ephesians. There we go. (laughs) Somebody's just been made an angel. (laughs) (laughs) All right, going to sneak this in. St. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, quoting an ancient hymn, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, for Christ shall give you light. Thank you. Thank you, Frederica. We're going to do. Uh, we're going to have some time for questions and answers right now. Uh, unfortunately, you only get to ask the questions. Uh, we've had a problem with that in the past. Uh, and uh, please try to um, phrase your question in the form of a question. That would be ideal, actually. Um, 
and maybe limit it to about 45 syllables max, maybe 48 if you have to. Um, but uh, the microphone here is uh, waiting for you. Uh, if you're interested in uh, asking a question, we would be, uh, we'd be delighted um, to have you do that. And if you insist on standing and asking the question from where you uh, have been seated, we will accommodate you, but we'd prefer that we want to get these for the tape. We're trying to make these tapes available. So if anyone, uh, by the way, I want to say we don't have a lot of rules here at Socrates in the city, but I have to say whoever brought that grandfather clock with them, that's just really inappropriate. Uh, if you don't mind, maybe you think about other people next time you show up at a big event. That'd be great. Um, does no one have any questions? I've got a hundred questions. Shall I start? Yes, yes. Thank you very much. Um, Frederica, my first question is, um, this is kind of a dumb question, but what's your name again? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's a joke question. Now, my first question is, um, when you talk about theosis, I'm fascinated by that idea. I've not heard that, and it's kind of strange that I haven't heard that since I'm Greek and I'm familiar with the, the term and the language, but I... Um, how do you, um, what safeguards are there in Orthodox Christianity from somebody sort of bending that over into kind of a new age direction where they say, I am God? And do you, know, do you know where I'm going with that? Does that make sense? By the way, is this microphone live or do we just have one microphone? Is there a sound man in the house? Is this one live too? Okay, so we each get our microphone. Thank you. Um, Oh, it's not live. Then we'll, we'll share. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's why it does sound alarming uh, in our context to, to use the word theosis or to translate it. And, of, of course, it, it originated in a different context that would not have had this, this New Age sort of a background to it. Probably the best safeguard is the community. And ideally, every person who is on this journey should have a spiritual father or a spiritual mother that you're meeting with regularly every six weeks, every month or two, and talking about what's going on within and how your prayer life is going. We need that kind of support anyway. And your spiritual father or mother is accountable to somebody else and him to somebody else. And uh, also in the community, in our Orthodox worship, the hymns are, are very packed with theology. And so that's another thing, that all you have to do, you don't, didn't even have to be literate in the fourth century, didn't have to be able to read. If you just stood in church week after week, you would, be, you would have these um, hymns washing over you, teaching you about the faith. So there's a number of safeguards there. It isn't as much of a freelance thing as it, as it sounds in this context, and that's why I want to give that warning at the end, because it is, it's real easy to go sailing off the edge of a cliff. And, and to feel like you're doing the right thing because your own mind is approving of what you're doing every foot that you fall. So I think that involvement in a wise community is essential, is indispensable. Yes? I seem to remember reading that the um, Orthodox Church, that within the church, that there's the use of icons. Yes. And if you could just sort of Say describe that. Icons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm all parched now after talking. That light. Man, that's a bright light. Um, yes, about icons. And I do have a book out there called The Open Door that's a, like a basic introduction to icons. Um, iconography was, was a big debate, of course, in the church in the 8th century, the iconoclast controversy. 
there was a lot of concern. Could it be that these paintings of Christ and the Virgin Mary and other members um, of, of, the, of the church family or images from the Bible, could this be idolatry? And so it was, I think, maybe a good thing that the church had to wrestle out what icons mean. And the decision of the Seventh Ecumenical Council was that icons are like a Bible, like a, a Bible book, that it's something that essentially it's the Bible in paint. Usually it's Bible stories or Bible characters. For people that are illiterate, they could look at the picture. They can look at a, an icon of the nativity, and it's got you know, Joseph you know, down at the bottom and Mary in the cave and the shepherds over here and the kings. It's the whole thing, the whole story happening at once. So that it's meant to be something that as you look at it and contemplate the Bible story, you can almost go through it. It's similar to how the Bible connects us with God. You wouldn't say that the, the physical book is magical. You know, you wouldn't say if you, if you tore out the pages and ate them, you know, you would be closer to God. Um, we don't see a physical icon as capturing holiness in that sense, but the, the analogy is it's a window to heaven. It's as if you look through it, you go through it. And um, the truths of, of Christianity come back to you through that window. There's a lot more interest lately in iconography, and I think that many people encounter them in a museum or in an art book. And the reason I wrote my, my little book, The Open Door, was to make up an imaginary church and show you where these icons would be within the church. You know, this one is always here, and that one's always there and uh, give you a little bit of history, looking at 12 of the most significant icons of, of the Orthodox Church and of the festal year. Yes, Father. I would like to just express the fact that uh, when speaking of theosis, uh, you did not speak of another Greek word that uh, precedes theosis, and that is kenosis, the emptying out of oneself before you can enter into the threshold of being one mm. with God. You must have the kenosis before the theosis. And your whole premise was direct access to God, but you never mentioned for what purpose. And the purpose is the intimacy of being one with God. And I'd like you to reflect on those words and the question of the Eucharist in the church. Oh, all right, that's good. Yes, kenosis um, is uh, self-emptying. Is that, does that word actually appear in the Philippians to him, in the Greek? Um, for, for he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, kenosis, um, self-emptying. And that would correlate, although it, it, there's a lot more to say with what I was saying at the end there about humility, about uh, repentance and recognizing the garbage you've got to get out of the way if the flame is going to spread all the way through you. Uh, a lot of fearless um, self-examination is part of this. So, yeah, those two go together. Um, the intimacy with God, and, and maybe I was presuming that, but I would really want to stress it if I omitted it. It is, um, it is an, an intimate, powerful relationship with God in which there is a sense of merging. It's, it's just very hard to put into words, I think, that... Um, probably Christians have struggled with expressing this throughout history. And it is especially accomplished for us Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholic Christians and Episcopalians, Lutherans, in the Eucharist, in um, receiving the body and blood of Christ, which then becomes part of us, becomes part of us physically. You see, it's an affirmation of the body. It's not all mental. It's not all just getting ideas about God, getting your ideas straight. 
uh, in some of our post-communion prayers. I forget which, if it's, um, I forget which is the author of this particular prayer, but we say, scorch me not, O my maker. Um, Don't burn me as you pass through me for the right ordering of my joints, my reins, and my heart. The whole body is being sanctified. The body and the soul and the spirit and the whole person is being united to Christ. Um, As the the flippant saying goes, you are what you eat. And uh, we might say that God perhaps created humans um, capable of eating and digesting food just with the Eucharist in mind as a way that they could, they could understand. Union without annihilation, union without losing any part of yourself, and, and yet a true union at the same time. Yes. No, I think I'm okay, thanks. Yes? I, I want to ask the annoying question where the ultimate proof is that God exists. Um, what actually bothered me a little bit about your speech is as always, I come to these kind of events to uh, ho- hoping to learn a little bit. And again, it comes down to a very personal experience. Mm-hmm. It's your personal experience in this church in Europe uh, that God exists. Uh, I don't know what happened that day. Um, you know, anything could have happened. Uh, I'm interested in some kind of proof outside your personal experience. Uh, I know that's an annoying question, but... No, uh, no, that's fine. uh, (laughs) Yeah, uh, I see. uh, I'm one of these agnostic people you've been belonging to (laughs) before you were enlightened. Uh, So uh, this is just crucial for me. Sure, yeah. I I really don't want to wait for this moment, you know. (laughs) Oh, here it comes. (laughs) No, that's a... one One of the first things that occurs to me is that you... Anything that humans can understand is going to be found within a human person's mind. Uh, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know that you can ask for an objective proof of God that isn't also located within a person's mind and experience to the extent that, um, that the proposition makes sense with the rest of what they know about life. It's, it's like there's, um, there's no such thing as just a pure thought hanging out there in the air. It was always inside a person. So I don't think the fact that this is my personal experience negates it uh, or even diminishes its value. When I was a, a little kid, I was really nearsighted, and um, I still am. But how often my parents would point at something that I couldn't see. You know, they see it's there, it's the bird, it's the bird up there, it's in the tree, do you see it? And often I would fake it and I'd say, yeah, you know, I see it, I didn't see it. But I never said there isn't any bird. You know, I believed that there was a bird there probably, even though I couldn't see it. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm going around in circles, I'm resisting trying to give a, a proof for the existence of God because I don't, I don't think it's possible to do a proof that would be convincing. Um, but uh, I remember um, Metropolitan Anthony uh, in London, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, who just died a, a few months ago, was on a TV show once with an atheist, was asked a very similar question, and he said, um, to me it is, you, you talk about belief, he said, you talk about belief as if it's an option, as if people have a choice whether to believe or not. But that God exists is so obvious that I am puzzled as to why you think he doesn't, 
you know, why would why would you think there isn't a God? Um, that's your experience that there isn't a God. That's your personal experience. But where do you get that? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I'm not being very helpful here, but uh, a jumble of thoughts to a very good question, not a very, not a very coherent response. I thank you for a, a challenging question. Yes. Uh, two questions, if you will. Could you describe a little bit about gender roles in the Orthodox Church and also uh, comment on Jesus Christ as our mediator in terms of having direct access to God? Okay, good. Yes, two. Uh, gender roles first. Um, uh, when, when I first became Orthodox, and my husband and I had been Episcopalian, I went to Episcopal Seminary, Virginia Seminary, when, when my husband did, and um, I had a lot of training, a lot of saturation in women's spirituality, women's ministries, and all of this. I'd been Orthodox about a year when I mentioned something about women's spirituality, and uh, the priest or the monk I was talking to said, what's that? Why would it be any different from men's spirituality. And I thought, you know, that's, that's right. There's no reason it should be any different. Uh, we stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Men and women are a lot more alike than they are different. And maybe there isn't a reason to make these artificial distinctions. In orthodoxy, I found much more acceptance of, of women in, as, as just as equal members of the church without having to exaggerate it. And I think this may be because we have such a lively sense of the community of the saints that in any church you go to, there are going to be so many icons of women saints. We weren't pestered by the kinds of debates that have gone on in the last hundred years in the Protestant churches about women in ministry because we have women saints that were healers, that were preachers, that were evangelists, that were leaders. We have women saints who were empresses, you know, the question about can a woman be a leader over men as well as women, we would point to Empress Irene and say, yeah, Saint Empress Irene, I guess so. Um, can a woman be an evangelist? Saint Nina of Georgia went single-handed, a teenage girl, all by herself and evangelized this entire country. So we, we expect that women will be doing all of these things. It's not, it's not restricted as clerical roles, things only clergy do. And... Uh, in my own life, I know that once I became Orthodox, suddenly I was being invited to speak at church events when I wasn't when I was Episcopalian, strangely enough. But when I became Orthodox, suddenly I was being invited to, to preach. You know, I've preached in Orthodox churches all over this country. Um, suddenly I was being invited to lead retreats and to write, and it just hadn't been that way before in that, you know, woman-friendly church. So that's my own experience, um, and certainly has been a good one. And I think, I think the explanation is in our, our community of the saints, the woman saints. The other was um, direct contact with God. Do we need Jesus as an intermediary? And um, I think because of the, the mystery of the Trinity, and I hope nobody <laughs> asks me to define that, I, uh, that Jesus is God, and that that when we encounter God, we are encountering him and the Holy Spirit, that that's something I, I can't really pull apart into three separate parts there. That, that we were estranged from God, that because of the incarnation, because Christ came to earth, we have been reconciled to God. Because of the, the incarnation, the life of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the whole package, uh, the, the power of death over us is broken, and we can, we can move into union with God again. 
um, Jesus is indispensably part of that. Indispensably. Yes. Yes. Um, isn't every Christian believer, almost by definition, hasn't he or she achieved union with God by virtue of the gift of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what regeneration is? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And isn't it a mistake to look for an extraordinary experience beyond that as opposed to just discipleship, being Christ in the world, mm. as a response to something that's been done to you rather than something you're trying to achieve after the fact? Uh, could I ask you, do you um, use the word sanctification in your own theology? And what would sanctification mean to you? Um, it's, it's growing in holiness. It's growing in a deeper knowledge of God. Yeah. Yes, I think that's pretty close to what I mean by theosis, is sanctification. Um, I think what you're talking about when you say regeneration is probably um, that, our, that our sins are forgiven by the death of Christ on the cross and uh, am I putting words in your mouth? And th that is what reunites us to God. Because but it is also an indwelling of the Spirit. It's an enlightenment by the Spirit. It is union with the Spirit. The Spirit is a yes. gift to us. And yes, yes, that's true. Um, I probably were, probably were missing each other, and I think not disagreeing, is that you can see that this can be a lifelong process as it expands and expands and expands. It's not like you, you have to achieve a certain amount of it before you're, you're saved. But that that it it grows in you, or your openness to it, perhaps as you allow it to spread, and that this makes you more and more effective for Christ in this world. Um, Saint Seraphim of Sarov, about 170 years ago, said, "Acquire the Holy Spirit, and you will save a thousand around you." And um, I th I think that's sort of what we're both talking about. That as you would say sanctification, I would say theosis, as this process increases um, the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, um, that we become more and more effectively bringing the presence of God into this world. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Yes. Thank you for sharing with us. I have a question about the worship in mm -hmm. the Orthodox Church. In my experience with the Eastern Orthodox Church, they did not allow instrumental music. Mm. And I was wondering if this is consistent through, through all Orthodox churches and why. It's, it's not consistent, especially in America, that um, in uh, the classic, in the ancient form, all the music was a cappella. And there was an idea that just that, that I, I don't, it's not an adamant theological position, but just that the human voice is the instrument created by God. And so we try to use that as beautifully as we can. When Orthodox came to America, they discovered uh, many times they would buy churches that were being sold by another congregation. There's an organ there. Um, partly, I think, as a way of fitting in or even being a presence in this culture, your, your church has pews and it has an organ, and so they worked with that. There are some churches like my own um, where when we bought our church building, we took, took the pews out. We don't have any org organ. We do it all a cappella. And uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, being a soprano and learning to sing without accompaniment has been terrific for me, quite a challenge. But um, it's, it's not an adamant position. Many Orthodox churches that you go to in America, there will be an organ. Where does the theory stand as far as um, the voice? Because in... Psalm 149, it does say, praise him with the timbrel and the lyre. Why is it that just the voice, I understand it's a, mm -hmm. a God-given gift, but is there a basis on that? 
I don't, I, I don't know. Father, do you have an answer to that? I don't, I have not heard an objection to using instruments. I don't know anybody who uses a timbrel and a lyre, though I'd love to see that. <laughs> I think you have the variation throughout, throughout the world. If you go to the Coptic churches or the Ethiopian churches of North Africa, you will not only have timbrels and, and horns, but you'll have drums and all sorts of uh, mm -hmm. variations of instruments, including hand cymbals. And if you want to see some of that, just go to the Coptic churches here in Brooklyn and New York. Uh, you'll true. have a jazz band right on the altar. Uh, but it's not, it, it's, 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 the vari it's the beautiful variation of orthodoxy. And uh, I, I certainly, I, I don't preclude to be your accompanying uh, <laughs> bookend in, in the lecture. But certainly, if anybody wants to know what is orthodox spirituality, uh, seek out your local orthodox church and sit in the back pew. Ignore the people. <laughs> Ignore the people. But listen to the music, smell the incense, be mesmerized by the music and the incense and the candlelight and uh, fall into the depth of the intimacy that we were speaking of before, the theosis. The young man who spoke earlier with that beautiful um, Swiss accent, um, I, I would tend to think, he said he was an agnostic, uh, and I would tend to think uh, maybe he's more a believer than an agnostic, but he doesn't know where to search for this belief. Mm -hmm. And certainly it is the word we mentioned before, the kenosis, empty out and let him in. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened. These are simple things. Yes, yes. But we sort of, we in the West as Orthodox, are transfigured by all of this rationalism of Rome and, and the Protestant world. And, and we're trying to, to tell them what we're doing. And we, the best way to tell them is, come, come and see. see. Can I um, thank you, Father? He's like my, my person in the audience, like on I want to be a millionaire, I call on when I don't know the answer. Um, <laughs> says uh, Father Eugene Pappas of the Greek Archdiocese. Um, when I first started going to the Orthodox Church with my husband, I hated it. I thought it was so boring. So, uh, you know, I'll tell the truth here. You'll see my book Facing East out there. I, I, it was, you know, they repeat everything over and over again. The Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, 40 times. I thought, you know, God didn't hear us the first time. Why do we have to keep saying this? And, um, you know, they'll sing a hymn and then, like, repeat it. Like, you know, um, I, I really didn't get it. What I realized was that as somebody who had been in, in sort of a... Um, I was used to sentimental worship. I was used to worship where I played the guitar, we'd sing the choruses, repeat over and over and over again, so I should know about repeating, you know? And, uh, and the whole point was to get a tear in my eye, you know, and to feel moved. And uh, so I wasn't getting that here. Or conversely, it was, hmm, that's an interesting concept, you know? You hear a sermon that has a lot of complicated stuff packed into it, and you think about it. It was all either head or heart, meaning either brain or emotions. And what I gradually learned is that as I immersed in this worship, it like, it like locks into a different place inside. It's like alpha waves or something. You start to just fall into the presence of God, and the repetition is 
like a lover saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Because we live in time, we say it over and over again. We just speak, keep speaking our love over and over again. Um, you know, the, the beloved doesn't say, you already said that. <laughs> you know, it's just, you keep repeating it. The beauty of it just washes over you. Um, in fact, I, I, somebody once said, why do you say, Lord, have mercy 40 times? Because we don't mean it until the 37th time. You know, <laughs> it needs to sink into us. And, and so in this worship, it, you find yourself kind of going into a different level and, and tuning into that intimate place inside where God speaks to you. It's just a different, a different kind of an experience. It's, it's such a beautiful part of Christian spirituality and annoys the heck out of me that for 200 years of the Enlightenment, Christians have felt compelled to hide it. You know, it was like the world was saying to us, anything having to do with faith is stupid. And Christians were forced to say, well, here's a logical proof, or here's something that's going to make you feel emotional. But everything that had to do with this interior reality, what, what we might call supernatural, even though it's not a very good term, we had to, you know, ixnay on the supernatural, say, because, you know, because Voltaire wasn't going to like it. And... Um, <laughs> You know, we spent 200 years trying different haircuts on Jesus, hoping that G Voltaire would like him. And uh, it doesn't matter now. Voltaire has found out the truth at this point. And, <laughs> and we see in the last five years less, you know, all of this hunger for spirituality rising up in the culture. And, and Christians are saying, boy, I left that somewhere. You know, we're pulling out all the drawers somewhere in here. There's something about real contact with the living God who transforms, who does miracles, the real God who is alive, present with us. And uh, we, it's there. It's part of our history. It's part of our treasure. And um, I hope that we can locate it and begin to bring that forward to meet the hunger of this generation. Yes, go ahead. Thank you for this fascinating talk. I'm, and I'm sure that Western Christianity has much to learn from an Eastern perspective. I have no doubt about that. And as I hear you talking about a lot of these familiar concepts, um, at least uh, to a Western Christian, and the idea of emptying oneself, it's not a new concept to me, um, the idea of becoming God is a stronger way of putting, putting the concept than a typical Western Christian would. Um, as I think about those things, I think I'm open to those uh, Eastern perspectives on those concepts. Uh, they also sound a lot like other Eastern religions to me. Um, there are definitely all those same concepts running through, uh, at least in some form, in Buddhism or Hinduism. So I'm wondering, as someone who has shopped the food court, uh, so to speak, <laughs> I'm wondering what you see as the distinctives. What are the things that keep orthodoxy from slipping into sure. other forms of Eastern belief? Sure. Or does that distinction need to be made? And, and I would say that these things that you... Uh, that you see are sort of Eastern are actually there at the beginning. Um, it was what all Christianity was like at first and gradually got lost under the pressures of excessive rationality in the West. So it's, it's, it, we look at it and we think, boy, that sounds like an Eastern religion. But really, it is our own heritage. And I think the truth in it has to do with the truth about how humans are made. Um, it may even be physiological. That, uh, that if, you, if you keep repeating the name of Jesus over and over again, that it's calming. You know, you could, 
you could repeat the word refrigerator over and over. It's simply a physiological response. But in the case of, of, of drawing closer to Jesus and sensing his presence, there is a real other person there. So there's, there's something going on. There's a, there's a spiritual power and dynamic that takes place because you're engaging with your creation, with your creator. Um, I think that there are, as C.S. Lewis said, that God has scattered good dreams throughout all cultures. Um, there are elements in other religions that are, are preparatory for Christian faith or that look forward to it or that glimpse you know, that shadowy form. There are, um, there are some churches in Greece, I understand, that have, uh, not within the church but in the narthex, icon-like paintings of Plato and Socrates, as if they were like looking forward. They could just see him in the distance, but they didn't yet know him. Um, so I, I think that Jesus Christ really is the Lord of everyone, and, and that that is the truth that these are spotting in a fuzzy way on the fringes. As he said, I have other sheep that, that aren't art of this flock yet, and I must bring them, and they must be one with you, so that the whole flock will be one. That's the goal, that, that everyone comes to know that Jesus is the light that they seek. Another one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not even com- so hesitant, you know. I think I'll do another one. Yes. Could you say something about the concept of Sophia or the role of Sophia in Greek Orthodoxy or in Orthodoxy? The role of Sophia in, in Orthodoxy. Um, this means wisdom. Um, and uh, I've been Orthodox for 11 years now. I've listened to a lot of services, and I have not encountered a concept of Sophia as an entity. There's a Saint Sophia. You know, there are people by that name. Um, but I am, I'm not familiar with it in any sense other than in the West we would say wisdom. You know, it's a, wisdom's a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing, but we do not spiritualize it as if it's an entity or a power of its own. As far as I know, Father Eugene, you have a correction for me? Is this... No? All right, an addition. I welcome that. I hope they don't think this was planned. (laughs) Because we we met only an hour ago. I know, I know. We never met before. Um, As you rightfully said, Sophia is not a person. It's, uh, it's It's the concept of God's wisdom. And in Greek, we have an expression that says... Archi Sophia's Fovu Theu. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. But that Fovos Theu is not so much the fear of trembling, but the awe of God. And I think uh, in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom that you mentioned, we uh, so uh, casually use in our Orthodox Church that goes back to the fourth century. we constantly are calling out the name Sophia, or the word Sophia. Yes. Wisdom. So, wisdom, let us arise. Wisdom, let us attend. Wisdom, let us pray. And we're calling upon the awesome genius of God, that we should hear it, absorb it, observe it, and digest it, and then imitate it. And so this Sophia is, is really the wisdom of God. I would just like to make one other reflection, and that is... Um, we were speaking earlier about the icons and I think if anything is symbolic of Christianity in the Eastern Church it is the icon Uh, in in the Western Church maybe in the Roman Church you would think of the papal tiara and the keys of Peter 
in, in the Protestant church, it might be just the open Bible, uh, the Alpha and Omega. But the icon for us is not only a source of spiritual inspiration and uh, 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 maybe teaching and a teaching instrument as well, uh, but it also is a reflection of the incarnation. The very premise that you speak of tonight, that God took human flesh and entered and dwelt with man, that man may be deified and return to the source of his being. We are called to return in essence, ontologically, back to God, for we are part of God. And we will all realize that with our last breath. Mm, good, good point, yeah. I think the last question will have to be mine. Um, uh, Frederick, I was interested in the beginning of your talk, you were talking about uh, the Gnostics, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Da Vinci Code, and so on and so forth. My question to you would be, um, what do you think fundamentally is the appeal of um, sort of the apocryphal Gospels? The, I seem to see this, it's almost every season a new book comes out, and it seems to partake of that kind of theology. What, what do you think fundamentally is the, the continuing appeal of that? And that will be the last question. I, I've puzzled about this, actually, because one of the things we hear a lot in these books about the apocryphal Gospels and the, the discovering the ancient documents and all, there's a very strong frisson of, um, of rebelliousness in it. I mean, part of what the appeal is seems to be they're poking the finger in the eye of Western Christianity. Um, as uh, Philip Jenkins' wonderful book, uh, The Lost Gospel, shows, there's a whole sort of mythology going on here where, oh, we discovered this ancient document. Look, it proves that Christians are bad guys. Um, so there's a, there's a whole kind of drama going on around that. I think that's one of the appeals, is that it looks like it's a way to challenge Western Christians. But I think for some people there is there's a genuine hunger for, for a spiritual life. And uh, they look at it, all this increased spirituality in the world, and they see, you know, Madonna's wearing her little red string bracelet, and people are, you know, chanting and doing all these things, and they think, I'm not quite ready for that. That's a little bit too foreign for me, a little too odd for me, but I would like to have spirituality too. I, I see why that's important. I feel a hunger for that. And they think, I, I remember I grew up, I went to a church every once in a while, is there a way you can do spirituality and have Jesus in it? You know, I want a version that has Jesus in it. And that's partly what they're looking for. But unfortunately, they've become convinced that the mainstream church has nothing to offer them, um, in many cases unfairly because of the way the church is presented. In some cases, unfortunately, after 200 years of feeling like you have to, you know, evidence that demands a verdict, you know, you're always having to prove things logically, it doesn't look like there's very much spirituality there. Or there's a very effusive emotional kind that's undirected and undisciplined. So it doesn't occur to them they'll find it in our churches. It is a call to our churches, to our Christian communities, to rediscover the power of the immediate presence of Jesus Christ and acquire the Holy Spirit so that a thousand around you will be saved, will be converted, um, to recover this heritage that um, what I've been telling you about today, I keep saying it's orthodox, but it's not only orthodox. Every one of you that's a Christian, you go back to the first century. 
If you read the writings of the, of the, of the gospel in the first and the second and the third century, it's there. It's your heritage as well. Um, so I would want to call all of you here who are Christians to live into this and to lift high the cross so that people will see the beauty of Jesus Christ and be attracted to him. Thank you. Thank you very much.